Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 10 this morning. You can find it on page 977 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, we want to give you a Bible. So again, over at the welcome table, we have Bibles that are there just for you. You can help yourself to those at any point in time. That's our gift to you just for being here with us this morning. Have you ever noticed that it's the simplest truths that carry with them the most meaning? It's the simplest truths that carry the deepest meaning. And yet, it's the simplest, most meaningful truths that we are so prone to forget. We go through life just not even acknowledging them, forgetting them all the time. For example, there is one holy and living God who created and sustains the universe. That this one God, we don't have to look hard to see that life has an origin. That it was created with purpose, with order, with beautiful detail. The creation was ordered in such a way that it not only sustains life, but it allows for life to continue even beyond death. Right? Death is not the end. We can reproduce. Life continues even beyond what we experience. We don't have to look hard to see that there is a God who created all things, that gives life purpose and meaning. And yet how often do we mistakenly think that I am somehow the center of the universe? Right? That, that my life, my existence, my sustenance, my meaning, my purpose is totally dependent upon me instead of him. Or how about this one? Our innate understanding that there is good and evil. We intuitively understand that there is such a thing as good. We don't have to be taught that. We get that even as small children. And yet evil is a perversion of what is good. And we know from scripture that God is good. And that because God is working in the world, that good will triumph over evil. And yet we go through life terrified by all the evil that exists around us. We are mortified. We are afraid that evil will win. And we're so focused on the evil all around us that it blinds us to the goodness that's all around us. Have you ever noticed that? Or worse yet, we relativize good and evil to the point where we can't even distinguish one from the other. Because let's face it, if I'm basically good and I do what's basically good, I I, I can't do evil, right? Evil, that's that stuff for like Hitler and all of those guys, but not me. Evil can't be things like pride or apathy or selfishness or discontentment or ungratefulness or things like that. Or what about this simple truth? For by God's grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is not of your own doing. This is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And yet, we spend our entire lives boasting in ourselves, striving, laboring to find any sort of salvation in sex or success or relationships or religious efforts or any other idol that we think could possibly bring some sort of salvation to our weary souls. You know, the Christian faith is filled with so many simple, meaningful truths that we are so prone to forget. Simple truths that if we would only get them, 
we would only grasp them, if we would only take hold of them, they would change our very lives. They would change us to the core of our being. They would change our souls. It would change the way we think about the world. It would change the way we think about our relationships. It would change the way we think about the power, purpose, and ability that God has given us to carry out those very things. Well, this morning in Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, we're going to look at another one of these simple Christian truths that if we would only grasp it, it would change our thoughts, it would change our lives, it would change our souls. And this simple truth is this, that Christ is victorious and he has given gifts to each of us so that he might be seen as supreme. Christ is victorious and he has given gifts to each of us so that he might be seen as supreme. Now I know that that's a big wordy proposition, so don't worry. My points are just gonna be breaking that out. We're gonna be drawing right out of the text to be able to see those. So we're gonna have three points. I'm breaking that down into sections. So let's go ahead and read Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, and then we'll discuss it. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, in saying he he ascended, what does it also mean? But that he had first descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So the first simple truth that we need to deal with in this text is that Christ is victorious. And this is such a simple truth, but in the hustle and bustle of life, in the midst of busyness or the midst of hardship or uncertainty or pain, this is one truth that we are so prone to forget. If you are facing financial uncertainty, it is all too easy to forget that Jesus reigns. If you pay attention at all to the political and civil unrest in our country or around the world, it's easy to forget that Jesus is Lord. If you've been told that Christ has conquered sin and yet you have labored day after day after day after day in a losing fight against your sin, it's hard to believe that Christ has gained victory. In all of these and a thousand other situations, we can all too easily forget or doubt or ask that question, how long, oh Lord, how long? Is Jesus reigning? It is so easy for us to fall into doubt and to defeat. But I want us just to remember, just for a minute, the simple truths that God has already told us in Ephesians. First of all, he tells us that in the most amazing, loving, merciful, eternal act of God, that while we were still dead in our sin, though we were enslaved by the world, by the devil, and by our own sinful flesh, that all of us as mankind were subject to God's just and holy wrath against our sin, that God has done what is absolutely impossible for each and every one of us. He has saved us from himself are from ourselves. (laughs) He saved us from ourselves. That God has saved us. He's chosen us. He's adopted us. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He has sealed us with his promised Holy Spirit. 
But God, in the most amazing act of love and grace, has made us alive together with Christ. This is not something that we can do for ourselves. This is something that God has done on our behalf through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit. God has now united us in Jesus Christ. We are in him. And because he has now united us in Christ, we are reconciled. Not just to God vertically, but also to each other horizontally. We've been brought together. We've been united. When God saves us, he doesn't save us just as individuals, but he saves us into his family, into his church. The Holy Spirit unites us together. Christ's sacrifice is that fastener, is that bond, is that ligament that attaches us to one another in that bond of peace. We are connected. We are unified. And God, in his wisdom, has chosen to use the church as the trophy, as the display to raise it up to show his power and his glory and his grace and his wisdom for the entire cosmos to see that that is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that is what he has accomplished and so in light of all of that we come to chapter four and now we see sort of the 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 ethical provisions that come out of all that God has done and he says walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. We've been given this charge to live in our new identity in Jesus Christ. He's telling us, be who you now really are in Jesus. Don't be something that you're not. Be who you really are. Live in that new identity. Do what what I have made you to do. To reflect and adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ as we live together as brothers and sisters in the unity of the church that has been purchased by the blood of Christ and secured by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how do we do that? Ephesians 4, 2 through 3 says that with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eagerly maintaining. Notice it didn't say create means to preserve, to maintain the unity of the Spirit that's been given by the Spirit in the bond of peace. This unity, according to 4, 4 through 6, is built upon the foundation of doctrinal truth. We are one, we're called to live as one, because everything that we are built upon as a church is one. And so being a Christian, walking in a manner worthy of our calling, requires that we be united as one. Now, that's just the Cliff Notes version of everything we've talked about so far in Ephesians. And now in in verses 7 through 16, God is about to tell us that though we are one, that doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that God's grace is established to us unilaterally, equally across every bit, but yet he gives us a diversity of gifts and a diversity of roles so that we together as a church, each part working properly, might be built up and grow in that unity together. We've been united in Christ And so now we are one through the work of the Holy Spirit. We are founded upon the unity of the gospel. And we are called by God the Father to live as one. And so he gives us this diversity of gifts so that we might grow in unity. And so that brings us to our text this morning in verses 7 through 10. Now I think that a lot of times when we come to this passage, we do one of two things. 
either we look at this passage and we focus just on the gifts that God has given us and we make that sort of the main point, the main topic of this passage or we get really confused by what he means in verses 8 through 10 and so we just kind of hurry on to the next section. Maybe you do both. I know I've been guilty of both. But to really understand the simple truth of this passage, we actually have to start at verses 8 through 10 because this is the main idea that he wants us to understand. He's reminding us that Jesus Christ is victorious. And so verse 8 reads, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now in this verse, Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, 18. We saw it earlier as Kyle read it this morning. This Old Testament song is a celebration of God's past, present, and future victories over all of his enemies. He has delivered his people through military prowess, right, through, in Israel, throughout history, conquering all of his adversaries. And now, in this triumphal procession, God is ascending up onto his holy mountain, in this victorious parade that celebrates all that God has done. Says he, and now he's dwelling among his people. So in great fanfare and in great revelry, the people celebrate the salvation that God has given them over their enemies. I don't know if you've maybe seen movie clips of our soldiers returning home from World War II. We have to go back that far to kind of see this sort of celebration happen. But if you've seen those clips, you know that there were these huge parades of people that bands would be playing, confetti would be flying, and people would be cheering. Right? That's a little about just kind of like what Psalm 68 describes, but this triumphal procession of God is far greater. Psalm 68, 18 actually reads, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among humanity, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. And what he's describing here is this ancient Near Eastern triumphal procession, right? So when a, a conquering army would win victory over another army, they would often have this huge parade where they'd go into their capital city and they'd be led by their king or by the winning general and they would just have this huge train to celebrate this victory. They're like, I want you to see just how great this victory is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to lead a host of captives. Now, who are these hosts of captives? Well, first of all, primarily, they are the prisoners of war. They are the conquered army, those who still survive, brought in like naked with hooks in their noses, led on a chain, right, just to kind of show the ultimate defeat they have over their enemies. But also in this train, in this host of captives, could be those fellow brothers, fellow soldiers who were captured by that army ahead of time. They were former prisoners of war who had been freed, who had been redeemed, who had been delivered. And then usually bringing up behind were all of these possessions, the plunder, the spoils of war, gold, silver, priceless treasures in this train, all parading them out, showing them to just see how how triumphant, how victorious this army is, this king is, so that they might celebrate his deliverance and his protection of them. In Psalm 68, 18, it describes God as having received gifts from among humanity, even the rebellious, that he might dwell in his holy city with his redeemed people. 
right? So you kind of get this, almost this notion of payment. This parade is a celebration of God's victory over his people, uh, over his enemies, for his people, and he is the one receiving the spoils of war, all right? Now, you've probably noticed that Paul didn't quote Psalm 68 exactly, did he? Paul changes a few things. He changes the subject of the statement so that it's no longer telling God what he has done in the second person. You, God, have ascended. But now it's in the third person describing what Christ has done, that he ascended. Paul changes the collective singular noun humanity in the psalm to the plural noun human beings. He gave gifts to men. And then the biggest edit is that he changed the word received to its complete opposite, that he gave. He modifies the end of the statement so that instead of God receiving gifts from among humanity singular, what you have here is Christ giving gifts to human beings plural. How could Paul do that? I mean, what, what was he mistaken? Did he... Did he just misquote the psalm? Like, I mean, my memory's faulty. I kind of got a few words wrong, and I was just reading through 4, 7 through 10. I mean, so maybe that's what Paul's doing. I mean, does Paul actually think that you have the right to go just twist Scripture to fit your fancy? Well, no, not at all. He does it with a clear purpose in mind. So there are a couple of things that we need to understand about Paul's quote here. First of all, Though Paul changes the wording of the psalm for the purpose of us seeing Christ in it, he in no way changes the theme or the meaning of the psalm. The meaning is still the same. It still communicates what it was intended to to communicate, that God's triumphing over his enemies. The main idea didn't change. And second, and this is maybe most important, we have to remember who Paul is. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He is appointed by God and given direct revelation from the Holy Spirit that this psalm is ultimately about Jesus. All right? So what he's saying here is kids don't try this at home. All right? He was a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given him. He received this understanding by revelation of the Holy Spirit. You and I were not directly commissioned by the resurrected Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry to go out as miracle-working missionaries to start churches, to write the very word of God as given by revelation from the Holy Spirit, and then suffer and die for the sake of his name. That doesn't describe anyone in this room. So we don't have that same liberty that he has as an apostle, right? Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has, has been given understanding as an apostle that Psalm 68, 18 is ultimately about Jesus, that he is the triumphant Lord. And how does Jesus triumph? Christ's resurrection and ascension was his means of victory over all of his enemies, over his host of captives. Remember back in chapter one, verses 20 through 23, when we talked about this, that Paul prayed that God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would understand the immeasurable greatness of his power that's at work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand above all his enemies, all rulers and authorities and powers and dominion, right? Do you remember that? Resurrection and ascension, 
above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, that God has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So how does Christ conquer his resurrection and his ascension? Every rule, every authority, every power, every dominion, both spiritual and physical, both good and evil, every name that is named from every age, God has put all things under his feet. And though Paul is primarily has these demonic rulers and authorities in view, according to 3.10, we would be fools if we didn't also consider chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Because it's clearly meant to include that too, that all of those who were dead in their sin and trespasses, whom God has made alive together with Christ. So, who is he referring to here? It is both his conquered enemies and his redeemed prisoners of war. Right? In other words, everyone is in his train, either for good or for judgment. So Christ is victorious over all. That's, that's the best account of Ephesians 1 through 3 and what Paul means when he's reading this psalm. Christ is victorious over all and for all of those whom he has redeemed. Now, what does he mean when he says ascended, right? In verses 9 through 10, Paul is giving us his commentary on what that psalm fully meant when it says ascended. And this is far more than this idea of God ascending to his holy mountain. It's far more than the idea of a general ascending to the capital city. He says in, his, in, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now this is another difficult part of this passage that we tend to just gloss over. First of all, what does it mean that he descended into the lower regions, the earth? I mean, is Paul sort of talking about some other spatial relation, like some underworld? Is he talking about Sheol or Hades, where Jesus went and preached to the prisoners there? Is he referring to the ascended and exalted Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit on believers? So it was the Holy Spirit who descended upon believers at Pentecost? Is that what he's talking about? Or is it referring to the Son of God becoming man, living a perfect life, suffering and dying a humiliating death on a cross, a death that he did not deserve to pay for the sins of his people? Well, I think that third option is most consistent with the book of Ephesians. I think it's most consistent with Paul's words in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And I think it's what's most consistent with Jesus' own words in John 3 and John chapter 6. That no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And he's talking in his descension about taking on flesh and living as a man. Now Paul is referring to Christ's descent and ascent, not in spatial terms, but in terms of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. That's what he's wanting us to understand. He's talking about the incarnation, Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. 
Or as it says in the Nicene Creed, which should be up here on the screen. It says, I believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all the worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. Ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead. Whose kingdom shall have no end. That same Lord who descended by making himself nothing, by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That descended Lord is the same Lord who both ascended, his resurrection, his exaltation to the right hand of God, he ascended, not just to heaven, but it says far above all the heavens, meaning far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, all the cosmos, as Lord of the universe, as Lord over all. That is who Jesus is when he says that he ascended. Guys, he's ruling and reigning over all that he might fill all things. Now here, here's why Paul reminds us of that truth. That Jesus is victorious. That Jesus is ruling and reigning over the universe. When you think about Jesus, what comes to mind? How do you typically view Jesus? As a moral example? As a prophet? As some moral teacher like Gandhi? As some go green, peace loving hippie that basically is telling us to be excellent to each other and party on, dude? Anybody know the reference? More seriously, do you think of him only in terms of his dead body on the cross for sins. Friends, Jesus didn't just die. Jesus rose. Jesus ascended. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is Lord over the universe. If Jesus is dead in the ground, then we have a lot to doubt and to despair. Right? If, if Jesus only died, then it's no wonder that we would feel so defeated because sin and pain and frustration and hardship and the devil and death, all of that is still reigning. All of that is still ruling over us. If the image of Christ is only a cross or a grave. No, what Paul the prisoner of the Lord, the prisoner for Jesus Christ is telling us that no matter how bad things are, no matter how terrible, you need to remember this, that Jesus is victorious. 
that he is ruling, he is reigning. When you think about Jesus, don't think of him simply as a prophet or moral example who died and that was the end. Don't let your thoughts of Jesus simply stop at a crucifix. It's more than that. Think of an empty tomb. Think of a triumphal procession. Think of the heavenly throne room of God where Jesus is seated. Think of him as he truly is the ascended and reigning Lord of the universe. It's such a simple truth, but it is one that will so radically change our lives. Well, how does it change our lives? A lot could be said about that, but Paul gives us some examples. And that leads us to our second point. Not only is Christ victorious, but second, he has given gifts to each of us. Friends, do you understand that we do not give to God but the ruling and reigning of victorious Christ gives to us. We need to get that, all right? Verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, what Paul is doing here, he's, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, listen, if God has saved you by his grace, right, by faith, this is not your own doing, this is the gift of God, right? If he has done that, if it's the Holy Spirit that's working to unite you to Christ, that he is powerfully at work in you doing all these things, if Christ has ascended as victorious ruler over all dominions and powers and authorities in the cosmos, then surely he has and he will equip you to do what he has called you to do. That's what he wants us to understand. If Jesus is reigning, then Jesus will give you what you need to obey him. You don't have to work at it. It's not about being something you're not. It's not about trying to make Jesus something that he's not. It's living in light of who he is. If the Father is calling the shots, the Son has won the victories through his death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit is working powerfully within you, then God will give you what you need to do to do what he has called you to do. So stop living in doubt and defeat and despair. What's he calling us to do? Verses one through three. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling, to live in our new identity, to be who we truly are now in this victorious and reigning Jesus Christ. And what does that look like for us? Well, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, letting our lives adorn the unity and the oneness of the doctrine we see in verses four through six. So what Paul is saying here is that God's grace not only saves us, but that his grace is distributed to each one of us according to the allotment, according to the measurement, according to the limit of Christ's gift that will enable each and every one of us to carry out that call that we see in 1 through 3, to walk worthy of our calling by preserving the unity that we have been given in Christ. So who is this grace given to? You know, I'm amazed as I was kind of studying this, that some people actually think that this grace was given to apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Right? That it's talking about those people as this grace was particularly given to them. And then what they're doing is they're looking at verse, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, far too narrowly. But they're missing the overall context. 
Now, if you look at the larger context and you remember, Paul is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's calling each of them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. When he says that God, that Christ gives gifts to each of us, he means each of us. And what for? Well, these church leaders are not to do everything, but they are to equip each and every saint for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Did you notice how he said we all attain to the unity of the Spirit or the unity of faith? And when each and every member is working properly, it makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so every other ethical command that is given in chapters 4 through 6 are given to each and every saint in order for them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so it is necessary for them if we are to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Christ equips us, each and every one of us, to do what he's called us to do. God's grace is continually supplied to empower us to carry out his call. He is continuing to give us strength to live in our new identity in Jesus Christ. Now what he doesn't say is it's going to be easy. What he does say is that it is possible and I am working towards that end and it will happen. But did you notice that Paul also said that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift? See, the victorious and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, who is ruler, to whom belong all things uniquely and specifically allots and apportions differing measures of grace or different gifts to each one of us. That all of us who are in Christ have received gifts from Christ to be used for his glory. And for the building up of the body, the church. Paul actually talks about this a whole lot more in, in Romans 12, 3 through 8. Where he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Boy, that ought to be a, a big red flag to us right here, right now. Hey, wave that banner. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But think of yourself with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive list of the ways that Christ equips individual members of the church to fulfill their calling. But again, what is clear in this text is that Christ is the one who apportions the measure of faith, his grace given to be used for his glory and for the good of Christ's body. He has equipped us, each and every one of us, and he has placed us together here in this body to be building up the church, 
growing and building that unity to display his glory to the cosmos. To help it to grow to maturity in Christ. We've all been given gifts. Every one of us. And because we've been given gifts, we all have a role to play. We all have a responsibility to Christ and to each other. We can't just dismiss that. It's not the responsibility of a few people like me who get up here and talk for a really long time, but to us all. There are no insignificant parts or insignificant gifts because God's grace to us in Christ is not insignificant. And so it doesn't matter whether you are weak or whether you are strong, whether you are young or whether you are old or, you know, how, much, how many years of ministry you have under your belt or, you know, what you're really good at or whatever. God is equipping you to do what he's called you to do. And you have a part to play. And so the question for you is this. Are you owning that? Do you realize that? Have you embraced that? Are you willing to use those gifts that God has given you for the good of the body and for the glory of Christ? Or are you cutting yourself off in some way? You're limiting yourself, your involvement, your connection. You're saying, you know what? I won't be a member or I'll do this much, but I won't go beyond that. I'm going to cut myself off. But you need to realize that if you're doing that in any way, you're cutting yourself off to the detriment of your soul and the good of the church. You're affecting us all. It's not just you and Jesus. It is us and Jesus. You are for the body and the body is for you. So don't stand outside God's all-wise, all-loving design for our good. Let us utilize the gifts that he has given us for the good of all. Anything less than that is wasting them on yourself. You want to waste the gift of God on yourself? And if Christ is the one who is apportioning these gifts, then, then who are we to pout like spoiled little children when we don't get the ones that we wanted, right? Who are we to question the wisdom of God? And basically it's telling me he's wrong to be discontent and ungrateful for all that he's given us. We don't deserve any of it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to complain by what I've been given, right? Just like, you know, Jesus, thanks. Thanks for the gift of salvation. Thanks for the gift of service. But I just want you to know, you kind of got this wrong. I should be a teacher or a leader. Are we really going to do that? Do you want to know... The real reason why you struggle with discontentment with the gifts that Christ has given you. This is the real reason why we struggle with discontentment with the gifts that we've been given. It's because we fail to use them. At least for the glory of Christ and the good of the church. We burn them on ourselves. We waste them away rather than employing them the way that God has meant us to employ them. If God has given you the gift of generosity, then you need to understand that the most joy and the most soul satisfaction that you can have is actually by doing that to the glory of God, to do it with cheerfulness. That's what's gonna bring you the most joy. Not by lamenting and trying to be something that you're not. 
So stop trying to be something that you're not and take delight in using the gifts that our good and wise and precious Savior have given you that you might give praise to him. You might be here and be like, okay, Chad, I have no idea. I have no idea how Christ may have gifted me. Okay, well, here's what you need to do. You need to find somebody who knows you well and loves you enough to tell you the truth. All right? Who will help you to explore that. Community groups are great for this. Life transformation groups are great for this. But, you know, you need somebody that's not going to flatter you or just kind of like tell you things that aren't true to make you feel better about yourself. You need somebody that loves you enough to tell you the truth, to say, listen, brother, I really see this gifting. Or, listen, bro, I, I know you love that thing, but here's how I see you gifted. And it's over here, right? And how do you figure that out for yourself? You do it by actually doing it right? You learn by doing. And as the church comes around and they affirm those giftings in you, then you know, this is how the Lord has equipped me to serve this body of Christ. But you don't do it by just kind of twiddling your thumbs off on the sidelines being like, I don't know what I have. So get in there and do it. There's plenty of opportunities. If you need lists of ways to serve, just come and talk to me. And I also need to say this, never underestimate what the Lord might use you for, even if you have never out front, even if you're never in that leading position, right? Christ didn't call you to make much of you, to give you the spotlight. He called you, equipped you, and gifted you to make much of him, to give him the spotlight. And the, mo- the majority of us, the vast majority of us in the history of the church will never ever be heard of. And that is perfectly glorious. And those few people that are, those spiritual giants, if you will, throughout the course of church history are indebted to a, an unnumerable supply of people that we have never ever heard of. I don't know if you saw the blog post in the Gospel Coalition uh, a couple of weeks ago, entitled Ordinary Cook, Unlikely Hero, right? Uh, it was about Mary King. I, I don't know if they're related to you or not. You're a big family, but uh, Mary King, she was this ordinary, uneducated cook at a school who lived in, in Cambridge, England in the 1840s, right? She, she's nobody. She's about as ordinary as you can get. I mean, she wasn't classically trained or anything. So how could she have any real impact on the church? Well, one young man from the school where she was a cook wrote about her some years later. She was a good old soul and like something very sweet indeed of good, strong, Calvinistic doctrine. Many a time I've gone over the covenant of grace together and we've talked of personal election of the saints and their union to Christ, their final perseverance and what vital godliness really meant. And I do believe that I learned more from her than I should have learned from any six doctors of divinity of the sort that we have nowadays. In the very first book that he wrote, he said of the old cook, from her, I got all the theology that I ever needed. That man was Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. 
If you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, there is no single preacher that is more widely read and more widely known outside of Scripture. It is estimated that in his lifetime, he was able to preach the gospel to over 10 million people. The impact that that man's ministry had on the church is incalculable. We don't even know. And yet he got all of the theology that he ever needed from an uneducated school cook who loved God and loved scripture and loved truth and loved doctrine and loved God's people. And though despite being an ordinary, uneducated, no-name school cook, she used the gifts that Christ had given her to build up this young man who would later change the very history of the church. You know, if Christ has called and gifted you, there are no insignificant roles. There are no insignificant abilities. And so much that we dismiss as mundane, as insignificant, as meaningless, as absolutely glorious in the eyes of God. And so because Christ is victorious, Let us not disregard the significance of any opportunity we have to employ the gifts that he has given to each one of us for this purpose. And this is point number three. So that Christ may be seen as supreme. In verse 10 it says, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. The purpose of Christ's incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension was so that he might fill all things. Now, what does that mean? That Jesus somehow spatially fills the universe the way we fill a glass full of water? I don't think that he has the ubiquity of Christ in view here. Luther was wrong. Don't worry about that if you have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay? Um, But I want to, you know, kind of encourage you to be Mary Kings. All right? Um, To understand this, we have to look at a couple of places in Ephesians and let... Ephesians define for us what Paul is talking about. So again, remember back in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. God exalted Christ over all things, and, and God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what he's saying there is the church is filled with Christ, right? And Christ fills all things. Christ is the fullness of him who fills all in all, right? He's the one who fills all in all. So what it's saying here is that Christ is not filling in terms of spatial sense, like he's everywhere, but that through the exercise of his sovereign lordship, Jesus proves that he is supreme over all things. He is everywhere. He is Lord of the universe. All things have been put under his feet. And so filling all things means that Jesus rules over all things. And so if we look at our passage 4 verse 10, we see that Jesus, just like in chapter 1, ascended far above all the heavens in order to display that he is ruling over the whole universe. And another passage that helps us to flesh this out is chapter 3 verse 19. Here Paul prays that God would grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and might be filled with all the fullness of God. 
And so the ascended Lord Jesus is the fullness of God and he's praying that we would know the immense love of Christ so that we might be filled with him. Meaning, so that we would come to complete maturity. And what does complete maturity look like? That we submit to the Lord Jesus in all things. We submit to his rule. It's, so being filled is not only that Christ is reigning over all things, but that he is ruling in our hearts. Jesus is Lord of the universe and Jesus is king over the hearts of his people. So in short, the very purpose of Christ's victory over all things and his distribution of his gifts to his people was so that they might live worthy of their calling is so that Christ might be seen for who he truly is as supreme, as Lord, as ruling and reigning Lord of the universe. In love, he redeems us. He unites us. He equips us with everything we need to walk worthy of our calling so that our lives together as a church might display the supremacy of Christ over all things. Now, if that sounds at all conceited to you, well, he just wants to be seen as supreme. He's just using me to to be seen as supreme. I just want to remind you that as creator, he owns all, okay? Okay. Creator, sustainer, he owns you. He made you. He sustains your life. He owns you. But he's also the same one who has redeemed you, that gave his own blood to pay the penalty for your sin so that he might purchase back his creation for himself. He didn't have to do that. But in his love and mercy, he did. All glory is his, and yet in his love, he distributes it to his people that he has redeemed. And as Paul says in chapter 3, this is for your glory. So when you read Psalm 68, 18 by itself, you can get the sense that for me to be in the possession or procession, for me to be in that celebration, God must receive gifts from me. I mean, after all, it says, and receiving gifts among humanity, even among the rebellious, that God may dwell there. And so I'm a part of rebellious humanity. Therefore, I must give to him if I am going to be there, that I have to pay God to be with God. That's, I mean, that's a mistake to read it that way, but that's often the conclusion that we come to and often the way we live our lives. But the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ completely demolishes that whole thought, okay? He rules, he reigns, he has risen, he has conquered. And by definition of who he is, and by definition of what he has done, Christ is supreme. That's who he is. And because he is supreme then he has nothing to gain from us, but instead can give gifts and distribute freely and include us in to his glory, right? To live as we were called to live, as recipients of his incalculable love. So this is all that he has done for us in loving him and, and gratefully obeying him in faith. We simply tell the world who he is as the giver of all of these gifts that we've received, We're simply in our lives telling the truth about Jesus Christ, that he's supreme over all things. It's what it means to live worthy of the calling. It's not buying him or paying him or giving to him. It's about receiving and then living in light of all that I've received. Just being who I am in Christ. 
And so let me try to simplify this. Christ has conquered all so that we might share in the bounty. We don't give to him. We receive and live in such a way that the truth about who he is is displayed. Or to borrow from John Piper, we get the good, he gets the glory. We receive the priceless gifts from the reigning Lord Jesus Christ in order to live and to be who we really are, the redeemed of the supreme Lord Jesus. And our lives are meant to display that truth. You understand, we don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. We don't make him Lord of our lives. Jesus is Lord. We don't make or pretend that Jesus is supreme. He is supreme. And we are called to live in such a way and are equipped in such a way that our lives reflect that truth. And so the question is, for you, is Jesus the Lord of your life? Are you living in such a way as to reflect the supremacy of Christ in all things? Are you utilizing in those gifts and living together as the church in such a way that Christ is seen as glorious for who he is, as supreme over all? Or are you in some way trying to rob him of his supremacy, right, by rejecting who he is, by refusing his offer of salvation, by neglecting to utilize the gifts that he's been given, by refusing to stand and standing outside of his covenant family, his redeemed people? Are you trying to set limits in any way to what he has called you to do in order to reflect his supremacy over all things? Because you are trying to live as though I'm supreme, as if this is my world and I'm God, whether you're a Christian or not. Friends, we all do it. Our lives as individuals and our lives together as the united body of Christ are meant to display the supremacy of Christ. And let's do that together. Now, I realize that you may be here, you might be struggling to take hold of that truth. I mean, just the world has just knocked you around recently, and you're just you're having a hard time getting this and taking hold of this. Well, I just want you to know and understand that every trial and every circumstance, every moment where the Lord seems to tarry, believe it or not, is actually for your good as an opportunity for you to exercise those gifts that he has given to you and to be the display of the supremacy of Christ in all things to others. I know that it's hard. I'm not going to pretend that it's not hard. But it's good. And in the end, we'll know that it's right. And we'll know in in new and amazing ways that he really has equipped me, he really has gifted me, and he has really given me all that I need for life and godliness but not by making my life easy, a piece of cake, but by being with me and giving me everything I need to walk through it. Every situation, every circumstance, every opportunity that we've been given is an opportunity to display the supremacy of Christ. No matter what you're dealing with, what every day looks like for you, 
It is an opportunity to display the supremacy of Christ in all things. And that others can see that in and through you. Right? If you would walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That is its purpose. That brings meaning to it. And so let's do that together. Let's walk together in such a way that Christ is seen as supreme. And so for us as a church, we've been given this particular privilege and responsibility to make the supremacy of Christ known to the world. So we need to live unified. Let us be faithful to use these gifts that God has given us for the good of the church. And let us proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light so that others might see the supremacy of Christ over all things. Friends, this is a simple truth. I pray that the Lord would help us to understand it. Christ is victorious and he has given gifts to each of us so that he might be seen as supreme. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that our eyes would be open to it. Lord, I pray that when we come here, we wouldn't just kind of talk about stories or fables or fiction or some sort of myth that happens so long ago, but we would see this for what it really is, that this is meant for our good to understand who you are and what you've done in Jesus Christ so that we might be changed by it. Lord, I know we've all got to complexity of situations in life where it's really, really, really easy for us to forget that Jesus is Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that your word uh, would remind us that your Holy Spirit would be at work to remind us that Jesus is victorious. That even if we should find ourselves a prisoner for the Lord, that doesn't change anything, that Christ is ruling and reigning. Lord, help us to, to see how you've equipped us, how you've called us, how you've delivered us, how you've redeemed us and built us up and brought us together and united us so that we might be the display of the supremacy of Christ over all things to the world around us and to each other. And Lord, I pray that we would just embrace that truth and live in light of that and talk about you much and see your glory as in our relationships with each other. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom and your goodness in delivering us and we pray that we would see it all the more as the day draws near. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.